And this is the podcast where we talk about plants, house plants. In this week's show, I'm talking to author Ruth Cassinger about her book Paradise Under Glass, and I'm introducing the first part of the On the Ledge Sew Along. We'll be finding out where to source your seeds. And finally, I'll be answering a question about mould. Yes, mould. I've been bowled over by the response to my appeal to get 100 people to support me on Patreon in time for my 100th episode because, well, we're on episode 87, but I've already broken that target with 102 patrons. Yippee! Thank you to my new patrons this week, Matthew, Harry, Bog Mossington, Wendy, Amy, Michelle, Joe, Rebecca and Callum, who've all become legends. And to Julia for upping her pledge to become a legend from a crazy plant person. I wouldn't be able to do this without you guys. So thank you very much to all of you. And in the very near future, you will be receiving the exclusive digital artwork that I've promised to my patrons as a celebration of that reaching that 100 mark. And I've decided that I need to set a new target for my 100th episode, given how well it's been going already. So I've been thinking hard about this and I've decided that I've got to go ambitious on this one. So I'm thinking... I'm going to try to get 200 patrons in time for my 100th episode. Oh, that sounds like a bit of a scary goal. But look at it this way. Even if you just pledge a dollar a month to On The Ledge, that will mean that you count as one of those patrons. So it really only takes a very few of you from my well, thousands strong listenership to actually come forward and decide to donate for us to reach that target. Everyone who becomes a patron in the run-up to that 100th episode will get a copy of the digital artwork, and I will also be scheduling a Facebook Live, as promised. And I'll also set another reward if I manage to make that 200th mark. Ooh, I hope I can do it. With your support, I think I can. So if you can just give a dollar a month to On The Ledge, that would be fantastic. If you can spare $5 a month, that means you get access to extra stuff. New episodes of An Extra Leaf go on there roughly twice a month. Sometimes it's a bit of extra interview from an interview that's gone on to the main podcast. Sometimes it's a unique interview. Coming up this week, in addition to the extract from Ruth Cassinger's book, will be an interview with Robert Pavlis, who is an American horticulturist who likes to burst the bubble of those very common garden myths that we all see being discussed on the internet. That's going to be a really interesting chat. So the only way you can listen to that interview is if you become a ledge end offering a $5 or more donation every month. So do go and check out the show notes at janeperone.com to find out how to get involved. I'll also tweet out the details. If this doesn't sound like something you're up for, then of course you can make a one-off donation on co-fi.com. As Bobby did recently, thank you for your donation, Bobby. And if you want to support the show in a non-financial way, that is very cool with me too. Tell friends and family about the show, mention it on your favourite Facebook groups and help to spread the word so we can get even more people listening. So the time has come for the On The Ledge Sew Along. Hooray! Hashtag OTL Sew Along all the way. And in this episode, we're starting at the very beginning, where to source your seed. This is a topic which is very relevant to all of us who are going to get involved in the On The Ledge Sew Along, because it's very easy to get very excited about growing a particular kind of seed, go searching online and think we've found a really great source and spend our hard-earned cash on what turns out to be something very much other than what we've ordered. 
I heard from Anthony, who told me that he's already been sowing lots of Australian plant seeds like Hardenbergia, Hackia and Acacia. And he says that also, ridiculously, I am trying four different species of baobab seed in my office at work. But Anthony's story comes with a warning. He ordered some mixed Sinningia seeds from Amazon.com. But when the seeds arrived several weeks later, they were large and looked suspiciously like pepper seeds, he says, whereas he knows that Sininja seeds tend to be more like dust. So whatever it is that he got, it doesn't appear to be what he paid for. I see these stories everywhere of people who've sent off for seed from eBay or from some other auction or market site and they've turned up and to the untrained eye they may look like seeds that should germinate but they probably aren't the seeds that you've actually asked for and unfortunately this kind of thing is absolutely rife. So how can you make sure that you don't fall into this trap? Well, personal recommendations are always absolutely great. And if you're a member of Houseplant Fans of On The Ledge, there are various threads there discussing which seed companies are worth a try. So do check that out. Do remember, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So all those things that you see where it's an ad saying, oh, yes, blue-leaved coleus or blue-leaved begonia. Yeah, yeah that's not going to work. It just doesn't exist. And if it did exist, it would be very unlikely that you would be able to buy a packet of said incredible seed for 99 cents or 99 pence a packet. So beware of those kind of things that promise too much. Second, there are certain countries which have a reputation for a proliferation of these kind of sellers. Of course, there are perfectly legitimate sellers in places like China, but you do have to be careful and make sure that the supplier you're using is reputable. And how do you do that? Well, have a look at simple things like their feedback results. Have you seen people recommending them on Facebook groups and other forums, people who've bought seeds successfully and grown them? And if they're offering something that you can't get anywhere else, then unless they really are come well recommended, I would stay well clear. If you look at my blog and the houseplant buying guides for the UK and North America, there are lists of seed suppliers for both those pages on my blog. Have a look at the show notes for details. If you're a member of any plant societies like the Gesneriad Society, the British Cactus and Succulent Society, the African Violet Society of America and so on, many of these clubs and societies will have seed distribution lists which you can join and for a not very much money at all you can get access to an amazing array of seeds. This is one of the big boons of being a member. So those are definitely worth checking out and there are some Facebook groups where people privately offer seeds for sale who are specialists in tropical plants or all different kinds of species. So that's another way. Although again, you've got to put your trust in the person that you're buying from to some degree and hope that you're going to get what you've actually asked for. If you find a company that you're not quite sure about, but you want to give them a try, you think they might be legitimate, then it's worth just sending off a very small test order for one packet, just so you can grow out those seeds and check that they're correct, find out how good their customer service is before you lay down a load of cash on a really big order. Here in the UK, there's quite a few different choices for buying seeds. Chilton Seed is absolutely fantastic and they have a really interesting range of seeds from aloes to coleus to abutilons. Whether you're in the UK or most other parts of the world, seedman.com has a really nice array of unusual houseplant seeds and I've heard pretty good things about this company. You can get everything from the Norfolk Island pine to alocasias, strelitzias, kangaroo vine or Cissus antarctica, quite a few different asparagus ferns and some interesting palms too. Silver Hill Seeds is based in South Africa but ships a range of South African plant seeds to the US and elsewhere in the world and on Etsy do check out Unusual Seeds who's a Serbia-based seller who delivers to the US and the UK and various other parts of the world offering a huge range of unusual succulents and carnivorous plants. It's also worth checking out the more generalist garden seed catalogues like Thompson and Morgan in the UK and Sutton's in the UK, as well as Burpees and Park Seed in the US. 
Often they'll have a mixed cactus packet, which is definitely a good choice if you're just starting out with OTL sow along this year. It can also be a great place to get things like coleus seed, showy gloxinias, and some interesting begonias too. I'd love to know what you're planning to grow, what you've already ordered, and what's on your wish list. So do remember to use the hashtag OTL Sew Along whenever you post about your houseplant sewing this spring, whether that's on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Next week, I'll be talking about the equipment you need to sew. But now it's time for my interview with Ruth Cassinger. Do you remember that one key moment when you realised that you wanted? No, needed to be surrounded by plants. In popular science writer Ruth Cassinger's book, Paradise Under Glass, The Education of an Indoor Gardener, she chronicles her transformation from an admittedly very reluctant gardener to somebody who was the keeper of a verdant conservatory which she calls her personal tropical paradise. I had the pleasure to chat to Ruth about her book, her plants, and the many fascinating things she discovered in writing this book, which is more than just a personal memoir. It's also a history of the conservatory itself. My name is Ruth Cassinger, and I am a popular science writer. I live outside of Washington, D.C., Paradise Under Glass was the first of my adult books. I had written seven children's books, books for kids between the ages of 8 and 13, before I wrote Paradise Under Glass. I can't remember now, Ruth, how I came across your book. It was one of those happy accidents that I found it online, reference to it online somewhere, and immediately, with the wonders of the internet, went out and bought a copy uh, because I just knew it was a book that was going to chime with me. And I've really enjoyed reading this book because this is a real uh, love letter to the conservatory and to indoor gardening in general. Um, can you tell me the story of how this book and indeed your obsession with indoor plants began? Well, it was a, a most unlikely obsession because I am not really a gardener. But when I was about 40, I had hit a low point in my life. My younger sister had recently died of of a brain tumor. And then shortly after that, only a month later, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And uh, you know, at the same time, I was approaching middle age, which meant that my three daughters were teenagers and beginning to flap their wings and clearly on their way to leaving the nest. And one day I was in downtown Washington. I had a, a job as a freelance writer at the time, working on Capitol Hill. And in order to come home that afternoon, I walked past the U.S. Botanic Garden. And the Botanic Garden in downtown Washington is um, has a relatively small outdoor area, but it has a magnificent um, glass structure, a conservatory, as we say it here. And the conservatory had been closed for four years for reconstruction. But as I was walking down the street, it was a January day and cold and rather gloomy, about 4.30, I noticed that the wood palings had come down and the conservatory was reopened. And even though I only had about a half an hour, I decided to pop in. And I walked out of the cold and wind and through the glass doors into this warm, humid, and incredibly welcoming atmosphere and spent a half an hour just wandering the twisting paths and enjoying, you know, the respite from the rest of my life at that moment. And I left, 
And over the course of the next few months, I kept thinking about the conservatory, the Botanical Garden Conservatory, and noticing in magazines advertisements for small structures you could build on the back of your house, conservatories. And I thought, you know, I think that's what I need at this time in my life. And so I told my husband, who laughed, because he's actually the gardener in our family, and he has a big vegetable garden, and he knew from a lot of experience with me that it was very hard for me to even to, even to get me to come out into the garden and harvest, much less spend a lot of outdoor hours. Washington, D.C. is practically a tropical climate. Uh, I objected to the weather. I objected to sweating. I objected to bugs and um, any creepy, crawly things. And I wasn't even that happy doing the harvesting because we often had zucchinis, and I would discover them when they were way too large and go to pick one up and my fingers would sink into the knuckles. So when I told him that I wanted to build a conservatory, he really just laughed. <laughs> oh, well, it's always interesting when you have a family who don't, whose interests in plants don't quite align with your own and uh, you have to fight your corner. But the conservatory happened. You obviously won the battle because you ended up with this wonderful conservatory which you write about in the book. Can you just describe the, 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 the nature of your conservatory and the kind of plants that you had? The, our house is, uh, a, was, at that time, was a, um, a standard, what we call colonial house, which means a square box of a house, although it was, had an addition, so if there was an L shape. And in the L, uh, we built a, a conservatory. It had glass walls. The ceiling was solid, although it has 16 skylights. And in the conservatory, we also put the kitchen table. So the, the conservatory was intimately tied to the house. And I started off pretty much by buying one of maybe 24 to 30 tropical plants. And those ranged from citrus trees to a coffee tree to traveler's palms, which reached the conservatory ceiling, which was almost two stories tall. And I had just all kinds of tropical, subtropical, smaller plants in pots all over the floor and on benches. I was really trying to create a jungle feel, but I also just needed to experiment to see how to grow tropical plants because, of course, I had really no knowledge of gardening at all, and indoor gardening is a, a different animal than outdoor gardening, so I wasn't going to be able to get too many helpful hints from my husband. So that's what it started off looking like. It evolves as you as you learn more through throughout the course of the book. The plants that you grow and the way you arrange things evolves, which I guess is a common experience for all of us who get into plants, that you kind of learn what works and what doesn't work. Um, but what's also fascinating in your book is the way that you intersperse the story of the development of your conservatory with lots of interesting history on uh, how indoor gardening developed and how conservatories themselves became such an important feature, you know, as public gardens and private gardens and eventually in private homes. I was fascinated and I have to say a little embarrassed that I'd never heard of the great British uh, nursery lodges. I guess that's how you pronounce it. I hope I've got that right which was a, a London nursery in uh, the 1800s that 
that's I gosh if I if I could use a time machine just one time I think I'd want to go back and head into the Lodges conservatory to check that out because this was a really quite something you know the the history of conservatories is really focused in the United Kingdom and started with plant hunters bringing back uh, plants from the the new the new countries and areas that British explorers uh, had discovered and I don't want to review the history entirely but you know it was both the ability to appreciate the plants and um, specialists who focused on how to uh, nurture them under glass that made a big difference and the discovery of how to build a glass roof. Um, For a long time the glass houses were really and this was this went back to the orangeries and the European fascination with growing citrus trees in places where they don't normally grow, the orangeries were um, solid, had solid ceilings because there really wasn't a way of um, having the iron structure to bear the weight and fragility of glass panels. And uh, John Loudon and Lottages were some uh, were the f- the first places that really were able to consistently grow tropical plants under glass. One of the things that I think the thing that I found the most interesting about conservatories and their history was that conservatories as we know them beautiful places to go and grow lots of tropical plants didn't really stem from the orangerie, but from hotbeds, and in particular from a from the pineapple plant. Um, I don't know if you'd like to hear the the story of the the earliest conservatories and the pineapple plant. As, as somebody who loves pineapples, I've always been fascinated how prized these, we kind of forget in the modern day where you can go and, well, in the UK anyway, you can buy one in a supermarket for about a pound. It's amazing to think what precious fruits these were. So please do tell us about that. Well, Christopher Columbus was the first to bring back a pineapple to, uh, to Europe. And... Uh, the, as you say, these pineapples became quite a status symbol, not only because they were rare and because they're, of course, wonderful to taste, but because they were so hard to get from the new world back to the old world. And the, the problem was that if you brought back a ripe pineapple, it would surely be rotten by the time you got back home. And if you brought a, an unripe pineapple from the Americas, it would, last the, would likely last the journey, but then you could never tell when it would be ripe when it got here. And a, a business developed, which was the rental of pineapples, they were exotic and status symbols, and uh, if you were sufficiently wealthy, you could wait and buy one when one got ripe. But whoever brought them back realized that even if they weren't ripe and saleable, they could be rented uh, for a a smaller sum to people who were having a, a party and wanted to demonstrate their status, although the guest would not eat the pineapple, it would be returned the next day. (laughs) I wonder what the modern equivalent of that is. Is it the ice sculpture or the chocolate fountain? I'm not sure. That's amazing. Clearly business opportunities here. And that was to be able to grow pineapples in England. 
And the problem was that a conservative, an, an orangerie, which, of which there were many uh, in wealthy circles, didn't, because it didn't have a glass roof, it wasn't bright enough to grow pineapples. But people did have hotbeds, uh, which are all glass, like window panes, but they lie close to the ground horizontal for sprouting seeds. The way that the glass-roofed conservatory came about was someone realized that it would be an excellent idea. It was actually a, a Dutch merchant named Peter de la Cour van der Voort. And in the 1690s, he started to grow pineapples, which you start by you know, just cutting off the tops of them and burying them lightly in manure. He started to grow them in a hotbed. And as the pineapples got taller, and a pineapple plant can be four feet tall, and then it sends up an even taller stalk that bears the pineapple, he just kept tilting the hotbed glass at an angle until, you know, it was six or seven feet tall, um, and so a sloping shed-like roof. And from that is where the glass houses that we're familiar with, with the all-glass roofs, uh, come from. And it's fascinating now that the pineapple is a popular house plant choice. <laughs> People are, are growing these uh, in conserve in their own conservatories and house plants to this day. So I guess it's stood the test of time as a plant that people want to grow. Although I'm not sure how many people get an edible pineapple from their plants uh, in the the average modern home. But I have seen it done. So definitely possible. I had several. Ah, well, coming on to the subject of insects, let's just talk about that because one of the things I loved in your book was the fact that you can't, you kind of, if I may say, you got, as we all do, got a little bit smug and then let things slide a little bit. And then one day you suddenly noticed there were a few problems <laughs> uh, and some pests had arrived. Well, you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to have a conservatory was I thought, oh, you know, I won't have to be outside with the bugs. But that is just a really mistaken idea. <laughs> and I, I remember looking at one of my plants and seeing this cottony stuff in the, in the joint between a, the trunk and a stem and thinking, well, that's funny, and putting my fingers on it and it kind of melted and then realizing that underneath that cottony stuff was an insect. And then the more I looked at my plants, the more I realized I had all kinds of different pests, which I looked at as invaders. And my first instinct was to just declare war on them. And I, I remember going to the uh, to the garden store and looking at insect, uh, insecticides and feeling like mm, since everything seemed to be organic and required many applications that I, I just was not going to go that route. I was going to declare full-out war and searched online for you know, super-duper insecticides, then realized that that was really foolish, especially since my conservatory was attached to the rest of my house and we ate our meals at a table inside the conservatory. To make the long story short, uh, I did use organic pesticides, but even those were not sufficient and, and were messy. And I ended up using bugs Called, you know, it's a program called Integrated Pest Management, where I was getting beneficial bugs to eat the bad bugs. And how did that work in a conservatory setting? Did you find that was, I mean, we did you find yourself overrun with these beneficial bugs or did they just quietly get on with their work and then dissipate? How, how did it work? They did quietly get on with their work. You know, I, what I discovered is that they, they you can buy these bugs uh, online and they send um, cardboard strips 
uh, I ended up with um, lace wings and they come, the eggs are mixed with moth eggs on a strip of cardboard and the lace wings hatch be, and become larvae and eat the moth eggs and then the larvae turn into these really quite lovely uh, pale green cellophane winged uh, insects which are only about a quarter inch to a half inch long and they take off and fly around and they don't they go where the food is and the food is the you know the bad bugs and their their larvae and so it it, it worked out just you know it, it worked out just fine I did see some some lace wings but they were quite inoffensive and they didn't go anywhere else in the house and they pretty well took care of the bad bugs uh, but I have to tell you that it's it was an ongoing continuing battle that was never over you I never got rid of all the bugs it just you know I just had to constantly be beware and be prepared to do battle yeah I think that's that we have this idea that there's going to be this magical day where all the pests are gone and our plants are perfect but of course even inside, that's just not a realistic uh, perspective. <laughs> uh, there's always going to be something coming in on the wind or drifting in and or coming in on new plants that's going to, to cause problems. And I guess we have to learn to live with that. Yes. I mean, you really have to think of even inside the conservatory, you are still part of the natural world. There is... It, it seems like it might be a, a precious bubble of glass, but the, the outdoors always comes in. We'll be back to my interview with Ruth shortly, but now it's time to hear from this week's sponsor. My kids absolutely love getting parcels in the mail, so they were really excited when their KiwiCo crates arrived this week. KiwiCo designs hands-on projects delivered to your door for kids aged 0 to 16 plus. And the great thing about KiwiCo is each crate comes with absolutely everything your child needs to complete an awesome, accessible project that makes learning fun, with no need to rush out and buy craft materials. Simply choose your line of crates and get them shipped monthly. You can also cancel or pause your plan at any time. KiwiCo has hundreds of projects to choose from, focusing on different aspects of STEAM, that's science, technology, engineering, art and maths. Visit kiwico.com slash on the ledge and get your first crate free. My 11-year-old loved her doodle crate, which is aimed at 9 to 16s who love to be creative. My 8-year-old got an atlas crate so he could learn all about the nation of Peru and got the chance to make his own alpaca. They were both really excited to investigate the crates and get cracking on their special projects. So, change the way your child plays with KiwiCo. Visit kiwico.com slash on the ledge. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash on the ledge for your first crate free. kiwico.com slash on the ledge. And now back to Ruth. And I asked her what she thought about the current trend for millennials adopting houseplants. Well, I, I think it is really a, a, a perennial interest. I, I think that really from t time immemorial, people have wanted to have greenery inside. And we've feel, and I don't think it's anything less for millennials, that we're cut off from the green and natural world. And maybe particularly millennials when, when, when they realize that, you know, the days of university are, uh, are over and, and lying around or sitting around outside reading books during the middle of the day, is no longer possible that office life is is their future, that we all feel starved of a connection 
with the green world. And so I expect that that's what it's about and that we'll always, or perhaps increasingly, feel that and that houseplants will always be a way to fulfill that instinct. You made me very jealous in your book in that you made various visits to houseplant nurseries in the US, including two places that I would absolutely love to go to, Logies and Glasshouse Works. And it was wonderful to read those passages where you described your visits because it really did feel like uh, I was there looking through your eyes and, and seeing these wonderful places. Tell me what you learned from those encounters at at those nurseries and, and, and how you picked out plants when you were there, because that must have been so impossible to pick out plants from the huge array of specimens on display. You're right. It is. It's like going into a candy store or even better, a, a jewelry store, and you simply can hardly make up your mind what is the most beautiful. However, after um, several years of growing a lot of indoor plants and knowing myself, coming to know myself and the fact that I am not a, a very assiduous gardener, I am not one of those people that checks every morning on the health of my, um, my indoor plants, that one of the most important things is to choose plants that are well-suited for indoor life and have a reputation for being easy. And it, you know, I always felt that I would prefer to have a very nice-looking plant with pretty flowers without having the most exotic but hard to maintain plant because the, the disappointment of not being able to keep it alive and healthy was, was a little crushing. One of the best pieces of advice I got was from a breeder, a houseplant breeder in Florida, who told me n never to look at a, a tropical plant as a long-term companion that for us in northern latitudes, houseplants are exotic visitors, but we are growing them in the wrong environment. It's very hard to keep them going long-term. Mm. The other thing that he enlightened me on as I looked at tens of thousands of identical small and beautiful tropical plants is that there's always another one and that for us in the north it makes sense in some way to look at these as a long-lasting bouquet rather than a permanent addition to your home and so that way you will not feel devastated when your tropical plant doesn't make it. You'll both know that there are tens of thousands more <laughs> and that it was never meant to survive where you're trying to make it survive. That is a really good point. Yes. And one that's definitely worth remembering. Um, as you as you say, they are temporary visitors. You may be able to keep some going for many, many years. Others you may enjoy for a shorter period and that's okay. <laughs> and I know you've moved on from the house that you write about in the book. Does your current house have a conservatory? No, it doesn't. But it is a, a house with a tremendous amount of glass. It's about a third glass and has a lot of skylights. But the one thing that I did um, continue from the house that had the conservatory, I had a living wall. I made a living wall that covered, uh, I guess it was probably eight, it was eight by eight, 38, 36 square feet. Um, and a living wall does not necessarily need a lot of light if you put the right plants in it. And there are many, uh, there are many companies now that make living wall systems that 
are terrific, and I have two living walls that have been uh, going for three years with just the most minimal care. So I would, uh, I would encourage uh, listeners to look into living walls. Uh, they, they need minimal care, and they can really cheer you up in the winter. <laughs> Yeah, I was in great admiration for your efforts to design your own living wall and it's you've got some plans at the back and everything. So this is great for anyone who really wants to get deep into this subject. And as you say, it makes sense to group these plants together and grow them en masse. There are lots of benefits to that, aren't there? Uh, if Both from the point of view of uh, making them look good, but also making the plants happy themselves so it's uh, it's a wonderful uh it's a win-win i think the the living wall scenario yes yes and you've gone on to write more about plants tell us about your two more recent books i think one's in production and one's already published is that right a a book came out it's called a garden of marvels how we discovered that flowers have sex, leaves eat air, and other secrets of plants. And it really focuses on the mostly British scientists, botanists, who discovered how plants work. I mean, it's one thing to, and this was back in the uh, 1700s, it's one thing to Um, open a frog and you can see its heart and its lungs and muscles and you know how it works even if you don't have much science. But cut open a plant and there's not much that's going to tell you anything about the way the plant works. And so um, the discovery of how plants work uh, was actually later than uh, the discovery of how the basics of animals work. So that book came out about four years ago, and this summer a book is coming out here and also in the United Kingdom called Slime, How Algae Created Us, Plague Us, and Just Might Save Us. And I guess I should say, you know, we say algae and you say algae. So it's a book about algae, everything from how they created the first oxygenated atmosphere to biofuels that may replace uh, liquid fuel for um, cars and planes. Oh, that sounds so interesting. I imagine that there is an awful lot that I need to learn about about that topic. I, uh, aside from my knee-jerk reaction to the word algae, which is cursing algae that grows in my various water environments where my marimo moss balls and things live but <laughs> out the role of algae is obviously far greater than that and that sounds like a really interesting read how long did it take you to research that book it took about three years i should say that you know one of the most uh, innovative uh, algae uh, products is something that you can get in in the uk um, it's a, a shoe called Vivo Barefoot, and the shoe is made out of algae, or at least half algae. Uh, there's a, a company in the United States, in Mississippi, that uses pond scum, genuine pond scum, to uh, mix with uh, fossil fuel plastic and make, this, uh, make those shoes, but also the soles of uh, running shoes, Adidas and Keen and various other brands. So look out for algae shoes. <laughs> wow, I never thought I'd be wearing algae on my feet. Well, I'm really looking forward to that book coming out, Ruth. Um, and it's been fascinating to talk to you about Paradise Under Glass. Thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you, Jane, very much. hope you enjoyed my chat with Ruth and if you'd like to hear her reading an extract from her book then you need to be a legend. If you're a Patreon subscriber of $5 a month or more 
you need to head over to my Patreon page to find An Extra Leaf number 24, where Ruth describes her adventures with introducing butterflies into her conservatory. And don't forget to check out the main show notes at janeperone.com, where you'll find some pictures of Lodges, the legendary London conservatory, as well as a picture of Ruth's green wall, which she designed and created herself. And there you'll also find details of all of Ruth's books, including Paradise Under Glass. And now it's time for Question of the Week, which comes from Lauren, who contacted me on Twitter to say that she has a fiddly fig and she's a bit worried because the soil has a weird mould looking substance on it. And she writes, any ideas what it is or what I can do to fix it? Is it bad for my plant? I asked her to describe the mould a bit more closely and she said it's definitely whitish with maybe a small tad of green and the plant itself is looking healthy. The gut reaction of many of us, even those of us who are loving plants, is that anything that looks like a bit of fungus must be immediately destroyed with fire. Okay, maybe I'm exaggerating a bit, but I do think we're very terrified of anything that looks a bit mouldy. You know, I love a bit of Stilton cheese myself, so I'm definitely not anti-mould. And it's definitely worth noting the role that fungus plays in all our lives and in our gardens and for plants. So the white mould that Lauren is seeing on her plant, the headline news is really it's not something to freak out about or worry about. If the plant's looking healthy, it's all good. This is most likely what's called saprophytic fungi. There are many, many, many species of fungi, so I couldn't tell you exactly which one you've got, Lauren. But they basically just feed on organic dead material. They're not going to be climbing up onto your plant and causing any major problems. It sometimes can be a bit of an indication that the soil is a little bit too damp. So do look at your plant carefully and see how its general health is doing. If it's looking fine and healthy and when you lift out the plant from its pot, the roots are all white and firm, then there's absolutely nothing wrong. But if your plant is a bit waterlogged under the surface and possibly been in the same pot for a long time, it might mean that the soil has kind of slumped down and needs a bit of aerating. So that might mean potting it onto a new container or possibly just poking some holes into the root ball with a chopstick just to introduce more air and allow moisture to be soaked up and then the excess drain through so that it doesn't sit there causing a waterlogged situation. If you don't like the look of the white mould, then you can just scrape it up with a little mini fork or something like that. Uh, Or you can cover it with some kind of mulch like hydraulica, the little expanded clay pebbles or gravel, whatever suits you. And if you are an asthma sufferer or you have breathing problems, it definitely is worth mulching your pot so that this mould doesn't have the chance to develop because fungus spores can cause an allergic reaction in some people. One other thing to note, if you have terracotta pots and you're noticing a white kind of mouldy stuff on the outside of them, that is probably not mould at all. Over time, even a terracotta pot that arrives new and shiny will start to develop a patina and oftentimes that's a white crustiness. And this is usually caused by deposits of mineral salts from your water. So if you're watering your houseplants with water from the tap and you happen to live in a hard water area where there's a high level of mineral salts in the water, as they go through the pot when you water, these tend to be deposited in the porous terracotta and they start this kind of white bloom on the outside of the pots. It's nothing to be too alarmed about. You can scrape that off when you repot the plant and empty out the container. Just give it a good scrape with a bit of wire wool or similar if you don't like the look of it. It's better on the outside of the pot than it is in your plant's roots. And if you want to avoid it altogether, you can water with rainwater if you happen to have a supply. I hope that has put your mind at rest, Lauren. Worth just saying, if you're seeing a greenish tinge on the surface of the potting soil, that may not be fungus. That may be some kind of moss or lichen that's growing there. Again, that can be a sign that the soil is a little bit too waterlogged. So do pay attention to what's going on on the surface of your soil. I would hate to think of your fiddle leaf fig suffering. 
If you've got a question for Question of the Week, just drop me a line to ontheledgepodcast at gmail.com. I'm always happy to hear from you. And I'll be planning a Q&A special in the coming weeks. So drop those questions to me now. And don't forget... Because I've reached my target of 100 patrons on Patreon, I'll be organising a Facebook Live very soon for you all to enjoy. So if you've got a question you'd like me to answer, then do let me know. On my Instagram stories this coming week, I will be putting up a chance for you to pose a question for me, or you can just drop me a line uh, via the email or tweet me. If you want to find out what my favourite cactus is or... Ask me what the rest of my family think about my plant addiction, then let me know and I will do my best to answer your questions in the Facebook Live. Details of that coming up very soon. That's all for this week's show. I'll be back next week with On The Ledge Sew Along Part 2 and a show packed with info about how to look after African violets. And remember, when life gives you lemons... Cut those fruits open, take out the seeds and grow your own lemon tree. Thanks for listening. Bye. The music you heard in this week's episode was Roll Jordan Roll by the Joy Drops, Quasi Motion by Kevin MacLeod, an instrument the boy called Happy Day Gokana by Samuel Corwin and Overthrown by Josh Woodward. The ad music was Dill Pickles by the Heftone Banjo Orchestra, all licensed under Creative Commons. See my website for details.